We're going to look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 18 to 29 today. So if you follow along in your bulletins or it'll be displayed up here. All right, listen, hear the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, and now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, before we get started, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Uh, God, we pray f um, for this time that you would, um, you would speak. And even as we just read this passage, uh, it wasn't always the case where uh, your people wanted to hear your voice uh, because uh, your voice was so powerful. But you won't enjoy it to the degree that you potentially could. And maybe some of us are like that with respect to how we relate to Jesus and we're, we're kind of okay and we're kind of fine with some of the surface level things. But what Hebrews was trying to do is it tries to get this community to go deeper and sometimes I think maybe in order to prevent us from falling away, we have to go deeper and we have to taste the fullness of who Jesus is. And uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why I really appreciate the book of Hebrews because it challenges us to do that. The passage that we're going to look at today, there's another contrast, and many contrasts have been made in this book between the old and the new, between the old covenant and the new covenant. Under the old covenant, there is a word that made people tremble with fear at Mount Sinai. But under the new covenant, there's a better word that draws us into worship to Mount Zion. And we're basically going to look at those two contrasts today as we look at this passage. Uh, so first, if you look here, there's a word that made people tremble. And uh, the author is making a contrast between these two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And with respect to Mount Sinai, it's pointing to a story that you can read about in Exodus 19 where Moses and the Israelites, they're uh, encamped in the wilderness of Sinai. And while they are there, the Lord speaks to Moses and says to Moses, these people need to wash their garments because uh, they're approaching me. They're approaching my presence. And I am going to come down on the third day. And if you remember earlier in Exodus, one of the things that God tells Moses before he comes before the burning bush, he says, take off your shoes. And he says to Moses, set up boundaries and make sure that the people do not touch the edge of the mountain or else they should be put to death. And it's not just the people, but even this passage alludes to the same prohibition even applies to animals in verse 20 here. Now, let me read the vivid description again of verses 18 to 19. And I want you to try to picture in your mind what it would have been like to come to the mountain of God, to Mount uh, Sinai. For you have not come to what may be touched, 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Now, approaching God under the old covenant, it's not something that gave you warm, fuzzy feelings. It would have been a really terrifying experience that would have threatened your very existence in the world. And, you know, of course, today you hear plenty of people say, I am just trying to hear the voice of God. And the assumption behind that is God's voice is safe to hear, but under the old covenant and in this passage, the problem is not that they weren't hearing God's voice, but that they were hearing God's voice and it was so terrifying that they were begging God to stop speaking. Now, why would they want God to stop speaking here? And why is God's voice so dangerous to them? Uh, I think the answer is they had a sense of the holiness of God. And because of that, they knew that they had no business coming to the presence of a holy God because they themselves were not holy. When God tells them to wash their garments and when God tells Moses to take off his shoes, it it gives us a visual illustration of uh, what it means that God is holy. Now, cleanliness and holiness are not exact analogies, but for the purposes of illustration, I think it does help a little bit in terms of understanding what that might mean. Uh, You know, many people here are Asian. Asian cultures, I think, understand the significance of taking your shoes off before you enter somebody's home. Uh, Not only is it a form of cleanliness, but... Uh, I I think, I believe in Asian cultures, it's also a way to show respect. You respect a person's home. If you have like these really dirty, muddy shoes and you trek all that mud into the house, how would uh, Asian people interpret that? I think they would say, you're not showing respect for my home. Now imagine you entered the house of someone who was worthy of great respect. Maybe it's uh, a boss. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's uh, an in-law or something to that effect. And imagine their home is so clean and so spotless that There is not even a single speck of dust in that home. Everything has been cleaned. Now, what if you had run through a muddy field and in rain to get to this house? Now you're soaked. Now you're muddy. Now you're smelly. Uh, I think a lot of us maybe feel a little bit hesitant to enter into that house because you sense the disparity between your dirtiness and the cleanliness of that house. Uh, You don't want to trek mud into that house. There's a sense in which I don't belong (laughs) into this house because I don't match the same level of cleanliness as this house. I think that's a little bit of how maybe the Israelites felt, except they would have been terrified because if they enter into this house, bring all that dirt into that house, they're going to die, right? God's holiness is something that they understood. Now, my guess is the average person in New York would probably say, well, doesn't that sound a little bit extreme? That just means, uh, right, what? You come into the presence of God. You even touch the edge of this mountain, and God says that this person should be stoned. Even an animal? What, what do animals do? If they touch the edge of this mountain, they should be killed. They should be stoned. Isn't that a little extreme? But I think that kind of sentiment maybe points to the fact that the average person in New York doesn't really understand the essential nature of who God is. I had a professor once. He made a comment and he said this, you know, uh, a lot of Christians today don't really pay attention that much to the Old Testament. uh, And if we don't pay attention to the Old Testament, if we don't read the Old Testament, if we don't learn from the Old Testament, the first thing that's going to go is a sense of the holiness of God. Jonathan Edwards, an American theologian from the Great Awakening, he once said this, that the holiness of God, it's, it's the only attribute by which we don't derive any kind of benefit from every other attribute, whether it's love, whether it's grace, whether it's mercy, whether it's wisdom. uh, We benefit from that and we derive benefit from that, but holiness, we don't see use from it. 
our culture is so driven by this consumer mindset that mm, I suspect many of us maybe only find God to be worthy of worship to the degree that he, we find him useful to us. So we think God is worthy of our time or our lives only if he answers my prayers, only if he gives me these positive emotional feelings, only if he gives me the life that I want, only if he doesn't tell me to do something uncomfortable. And if that's how we approach God, then the reality is we're not going to know God according to his most essential attribute. Uh, I think providentially the worship team read uh, a passage, a scripture today, and uh, as, as the elders and as the heavenly creatures are worshiping, what do they say? Holy, 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 right? Not grace, 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 not love, love, love. Holy, 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 because they are identifying God in one of his most essential attributes. If you want to know God in his essential nature, you actually have to know God in his holiness. Now, I, I hear famous people often say this. They, they express the fact that they are lonely. Uh, for example, uh, <clears throat> I became a fan of Lady Gaga recently because I saw the movie she was in, A Star is Born, and uh, she's a great musician and great performer. So I started watching like her performances and her m listening to her music, <laughs> and I saw the documentary uh, she had on, on Netflix. And in this documentary, she has like this little emotional breakdown because uh, she's so lonely and sh she's constantly surrounded by people, right? She's constantly, constantly surrounded by people working for her, doing stuff for her, uh, by fans, right? She has to avoid mobs of people. And the irony is, even though she's surrounded by so many people, she's very lonely and she starts breaking down. She calls her family. She's like, I'm just lonely. Now, I think that's a common thing that famous people feel. Why do famous people feel lonely? I think it's because people don't know them for who they are in terms of their essential nature, right? Uh, they know them as performers. They know them as entertainers. They know them as actors. They know them as musicians. They know them as athletes. They know them for their wealth. They know them for their public persona. But they don't really know them for the person that they are, the essence of who they are. Now, that essence may be uh, uh, different from person to person and uh, People may identify that in different ways, but the reality is you will never connect with a person in a truly meaningful way if you don't really know them for who they are, if you just see them for these surface-level things. Likewise, if we want to know God in a meaningful way, in a really meaningful way, there's no, you have to encounter his holiness. That's central to who he is. But you see, again, the original problem with that when you come into the presence of a holy God, when you come to know the holiness of God, there's danger in that. So how do we get around that? This leads to our second point. God gives us a better word. Uh, the author starts to talk about Mount Zion in verse 22, which in the New Testament is used as a metaphor for this heavenly city. And in Mount Zion, what do you have? You have the angels gathered. You have this assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And by the way, that word assembly is translated ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church. So you have the church gathered in heaven with innumerable angels in this glorious festal gathering. It's kind of like a heavenly party before God, the judge of all. And this is not a scene that evokes terror. This is not a scene that makes people afraid. This is a scene of worship. Now, notice the tense of this. It doesn't say you will come. It doesn't say it's a future thing. It actually says you have come. You have come. This scene that is described on Mount Zion, you have come there. You experience this in the present and in the now. 
Remember when the author was talking about faith in the previous chapter and he said faith is a conviction of things that are not seen? You know what we do when we worship? Uh, we may not see the spiritual impact of it, but in actuality, that, that is what we are doing. That is what is happening. That is a scene in which we are lifted up to when we worship with eyes of faith. You know, when we worship with our physical eyes, quite honestly, it's not super glorious. Uh, we're in a dance studio. Um, sometimes the power goes out. Uh, you know, there's not that many people here. We don't, have, we don't see the innumerable angels, <laughs> right? If we see with our physical eyes, yeah, we could say, well, you know, worship is nothing special. But I think what we're called to here is to worship with eyes of faith. That worship transcends both space and time. That worship is not just about where we are physically, but that we are transcended to a place where we worship with all the heavenly creatures and all the saints of all time. Now, the reason why uh, we don't have to fear in terms of coming to this festival gathering and taking part in this great celebration is because of this, Jesus. He is a mediator of a new covenant. His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what does that mean? Uh, in the previous chapter, the author talked about Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel. If you're not familiar with it, it uh, basically goes like this. Cain uh, murders his brother Abel because he's jealous that God regarded his sacrifice as better, and it is the first murder recorded in the book of Genesis, and one of the, signs, one of the first signs of things to come after Adam and Eve disobey God and sin enters into the world and things spiral out of control. And regarding this story, the author of Hebrews in the previous chapter says this, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. Interesting, right? He still speaks. How, how does Abel still speak? Why does the blood of Abel still speak? What is the word that Abel's blood is giving? It's a word of justice. Abel is crying out for justice. He's been murdered. He's been unjustly killed. And he's crying out for justice. That's his word. Now, by the way, uh, this still happens today when someone is killed unjustly, whether it's because uh, they were murdered, whether because they were wrongly convicted and sentenced to death, whether they were killed uh, because of some kind of discrimination or racial discrimination, whether they're killed in some kind of unjust war. Whatever the reason, uh, people sometimes will say this, that their blood cries from the ground. And I think that's a reference to Abel's blood crying from the ground, crying for justice. If you are somebody who has ever experienced any kind of form of injustice, and I'm going to say probably everybody here has experienced it to some degree, you know how important justice is. You know injustice, how injustice can leave open a wound for the rest of your life. You know how injustice creates this debt that goes unpaid, that ruins relationships. You know how injustice can destroy your inner person and destroy the peace and the fullness of life within you. And if God is good, if we claim God to be good, then he has to bring justice. He has to judge all sin and evil in order to make things right, in order to cancel debt, in order to restore what the Hebrews would call shalom. Shalom, uh, translated in our Bibles, is peace, but it's a lot more than peace. Shalom is when every dimension of God's good creation is flourishing because all relationships are made right and perfect and full of joy. And you know what ruins shalom? Injustice. Injustice ruins that shalom. Uh, when you have a woman reporting uh, sexual harassment to HR 
and uh, HR and the company decide to protect the wrongdoer because it's a powerful man, what does that do? That ruins shalom. Uh, when a person's wrongfully convicted of a crime he or she did not commit, ruins shalom. When a husband talks to his wife in a condescending manner, ruins shalom. Uh, when there's gossip going on, ruins shalom. When a child bullies another child because he or she is different, it ruins shalom. Since God is holy, he cares about justice. He cares about justice. And that's why he has to bring justice. Uh, he has to judge all kinds of sin and evil in order to bring justice into the world. Why is Jesus' word better here than the word of the blood of Abel? Abel's blood cries out for justice, and it's, it's a good word. It's a necessary word. You know what Jesus' word does? It's not a word of justice. It's a word of grace. It's a word of mercy. It's a word that cries out for our salvation. It's a word that cries out for our good. It's a word that cries out for our welcome to come into the presence of a holy God for that broken relationship to be reconciled, redeemed, and restored again. Jesus' blood, ironically, satisfies the need for justice because he is the one who takes that punishment upon the cross on our behalf, but simultaneously his word offers a word of grace and mercy and compassion and love on our behalf. You know what Jesus' blood says? His word says, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus' blood says, though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Jesus' blood says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus' blood says, come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. And you see, because Jesus' blood speaks a better word, even better than a word of justice, better than the word of uh, the blood of Abel, we come to this festal gathering on Mount Zion and to the city of the living God in the presence of a holy God and we get to partake in joyous heavenly worship. Now, if that's true, uh, what does that mean? Verses 25 to 29, it tells us what it means and it tells us three things. The first thing it says is this. Uh, we shouldn't refuse him who is speaking. Why? Because the one who is speaking is giving us a word of grace and mercy, and to refuse that word means we have to rely upon another word, and what other word are we going to rely upon? Are we going to rely upon the word of the law? Well, the New Testament says, that's what the Jews thought, the New Testament says the law kills, the law condemns. Are we going to rely on our word before God? Maybe come to God and give a list of reasons why we should be welcomed into his holy presence? Is that the word we want to rely upon? I don't think that gives us much assurance. The only word that really gives us true assurance is the one that says, you will be received and you will be accepted on account of my grace and mercy. It's not about you and it's not about what you have done, but it's all about what I have done through my blood. Don't refuse the one who is speaking because when you do, you refuse the word of grace and mercy for your life. Second, says this, we should be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I actually wanted to do the whole sermon around this theme, but then I thought it wasn't going to be faithful to the text, and I wasn't going to cover the entirety of the text. But uh, this theme of shaken has actually been on my mind for uh, the whole summer. Um, 
in July, I was away about three, or three out of the four weeks in July. Uh, I was in California for two weeks, and I was in Greece for one week. And you know what happened in both locations? Earthquakes. <laughs> I experienced, I have never, I've experienced maybe one tiny earthquake. I remember a couple years ago, uh, we felt one in New York. Uh, that was the only earthquake I've ex ever experienced in my life. In July, I felt four <laughs> earthquakes in these two locations. And, uh, you know, the one in Greece was especially jarring. Uh, you know, I was with Mike and a few other folks, and we were eating at a restaurant outside, and we were in Athens, and an earthquake came, and it felt like the, the ground just kind of like boom, like dropped. You know, in a building, if you're experiencing an earthquake, you just feel like it like sways a little bit or you feel shaking. Uh, but outside, it was, I guess it was kind of a large earthquake. It just felt like boom, <laughs> the ground dropped. And Mike was like, that felt like an explosion. What was that? Was that an earthquake? Was that a bomb? And it happened to be an earthquake. Uh, so that made me think about the Bible. And when God shows up in the Bible, you know what happens? He shakes the ground. And I thought, why does God shake the ground <laughs> when, when his presence shows up? I think this passage actually gives us a hint of that. Uh, when his voice shakes not only the earth but also the heavens, it indicates the removal of things that are shaken so that things that cannot be shaken may remain. You know what earthquakes do? They destabilize you and they realize the solid ground in which you stood on is actually not as solid as you thought. When a hard circumstance shakes us, part of the reason why we experience so much anxiety and fear and despair and hopelessness is because it's probably we, we're standing on a ground that is not solid. And that, that suffering takes that away. It shakes us. It destabilizes us. Suffering always does that. But sometimes that is the process in which we have to go to go through in order to reorient ourselves and reorient our faith so that we stand on something that is solid, so that we stand on that which cannot be shaken, namely the kingdom of God. Only then will we have the real security that we long for, the real hope that we long for, the real peace that we long for, even in the midst of our personal earthquakes, even in the midst of our personal sufferings. And that's also when we have real gratitude in our hearts, which leads us to the third thing it says. It says we should offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now that word acceptable I thought was interesting because it assumes that there is an unacceptable way to worship. Uh, the way it defines acceptable worship here has to do with reverence and awe. And the reason we should worship God in that way is because God is a consuming fire, and that has not changed from old to new. Now, what does reverence and awe look like? Um, I want us to think less about the externalities of worship, uh, not about uh, our liturgy, not about the service, not about the forms. I want us to think about reverence and awe in our hearts. There's an author by the name of Neil Postman who uh, taught communications, I believe, at NYU. Uh, I believe he's a, he's a Jewish man. And uh, in one of the books that he writes, uh, he says this, It is possible that someday soon an advertising man who must create a television commercial for a new California Chardonnay will have the following inspiration. Jesus is standing alone in a desert oasis. A gentle breeze flutters the, a gentle breeze flutters the leaves of stately palms behind him. Soft Mideastern music caresses the air. Jesus holds a bottle of wine at which he gazes adoringly. Turning to the camera, he says, When I transformed water into wine at Cana, this is what I had in mind. Try it today. You'll become a believer. 
Now, he's being a little bit snarky and making fun of the advertising company a little bit, or advertising culture a little bit. Um, but he's using that as an example, and he says, what's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with using Jesus in that way and viewing Jesus in that way? And his point is this. It is actually not that the commercial is blasphemous. Jesus did turn water into wine at Cana, right? Uh, that's not necessarily the problem, but what he says is the problem is trivialization against which there can be no laws. If we are going to critique our attitude towards worship, my guess is uh, I wouldn't critique anything that has to do with uh, blasphemy, anything that is unbiblical. Uh, That would be pretty easy to critique. I think people are here, I think you all are here, because you know on Sundays it's important to come to church and to worship. Otherwise, why would you be here? The harder thing to critique would actually be our attitude towards worship in whether we trivialize the worship of God. I don't think anyone, uh, or I don't know, and this is something that you know, and this is something that God knows, and I'm not judging you for it, and I can't tell your hearts from it, but I wonder if we have trivialized worship and that translates into maybe a lack of urgency when it comes to worship I can see why you know to be quite honest uh, if I wasn't a pastor I don't know if I would emphasize (laughs) the importance of worship uh, as much as I should it's tied to my vocation so of course I think worship is important where are your hearts Do you worship God with reverence and awe? You know, I understand. Uh, As I said before, we're in a dance studio. Sometimes it's pretty warm and hot in here. Sometimes the sun is shining. Sometimes the power is out. It's not the most beautiful room (laughs) of worship. When we uh, we were in Turkey uh, visiting the Hagia Sophia, it's really this beautiful majestic room, and you look up and you see uh, there's a painting on the ceiling of... uh, I guess the heavenly creatures, the cherubim and seraphim, and I think that's meant to uh, remind the people who are worshiping, oh, you worship with all of heaven. When we look up, what do we see? We see a black ceiling, right? Nothing special. We're in a dance studio. Uh, Some of us, we have uh, young children, and during worship, we're trying to keep them still, keep them quiet, and and just waiting until they get dismissed. Sometimes uh, we come in, we have all these other thoughts, and... Uh, we don't really want to sing. We don't really want to pray. We come in uh, maybe halfway into the service. Maybe we have good reasons for that. Again, I'm not judging your hearts. Only you know your hearts. But here's what I am saying. If we are constantly looking at things through just our physical eyes and we're not looking at things through the eyes of faith, you know what's going to happen? We trivialize the worship of God. We don't worship God with reverence and awe. And when we trivialize worship, we don't remember who God is, that he is a consuming fire, that he is powerful, and most importantly, that he is holy, holy, holy. We don't come to him with the reverence and awe that we need to come to him with. According to this passage, that's not acceptable worship. (laughs) So what do we need? I mentioned it. We need eyes of faith. Faith is a gift. Faith is not something we just kind of will within ourselves. Faith is something that God gives to us. 
And through faith, what we're going to be able to see is this wonderful festival gathering that has taken place in the heavenly places. We are going to see that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are going to see that God is a consuming fire. We are going to feel like we need to hear the better word because during the week we've heard all these other words uh, pointing us and directing our hearts to different things. But when we come here, we need to hear directly from Jesus and we need to hear his word of the gospel, his word of grace and his word of mercy. And I am convinced that there is nothing more important for the soul than to see and experience the beauty and the glory of God. I think that happens in worship. You know, in worship, that's when we forget about ourselves. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, uh, Mike Tyson has a podcast. Uh, I, don't, I don't listen to it regularly, but I, I listen to one. <laughs> Mike Tyson's quite profound. Uh, this is what he says. He was talking about, like, dying, I think, and he's like, you know, I, I look forward to dying. I, I have a sense he's a believer, right? Or he definitely believes in, like, um, God and who, who that God is. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know what his faith background is, but he says this. Uh, I'm looking forward to dying, and he's anticipating uh, an afterlife. And the reason why he is looking forward to dying is because he wants to stop thinking about himself. That's profound. His mind and his thoughts are that are haunting him are always about himself, his problems, his aspirations, his fears, his desires, his comforts, his conveniences, his future, his regrets. Right? All of these things are in his mind. And I imagine that that's our problem too. We're enslaved to our own thoughts. We're enslaved to constantly thinking about ourselves and our own lives and our own futures and things like that. Part of freedom, part of the experience of rest is going to be to be free from that to stop thinking about ourselves and to direct our minds and our hearts to something much more glorious. I think the only thing powerful enough to do that for eternity is the very thing that this passage says we have access to, which wasn't always the case. It is the beauty and the glory of God. Because of the better word that Jesus gives, we get to come. We have come to the heavenly city to Mount Zion with the innumerable angels, with the church gathered, made righteous and perfected through the blood of Jesus Christ, invited to come and to experience his beauty, his glory. How? By being in his holy presence. Holiness is not something uh, to run away from anymore. Holiness is the reason we worship if you want to know God in a true way, and just like our prayer said, not in what we want him to be, but who he actually is, knowing him in his holiness has to be a part of that. So let's come. Uh, if we struggle with that, that's okay. Let's ask God to show us even more grace and give us eyes of faith. Uh, you know, I hope, I hope when we gather and worship together on Sundays, uh, I would love for it to be this powerful, powerful, the most powerful time of the week. You know, my daughter asked me, um, you know, it's only on Sundays when we go to church, right? We listen to, like, worship music. And this morning, my daughter was saying, why do we always listen to worship music uh, on Sundays? And I go, well, to prepare us, right? Sunday's the most important day. <laughs> we do the most important thing on Sundays. We come to worship God. I don't think she understood what that meant, but maybe you do. You know what the most important thing you're going to do this week? It's what we're doing now. Have some urgency. 
hearts. Have some urgency. Our God is a consuming fire. Let's worship him with reverence and awe. Let's pray together.